Zencaster is going. We're good. Pre-flight check has ended. <laughs> uh, ladies and gentlemen, this is your captain speaking. Uh, this is your fucking <laughs> podcast about a concert hall. Yes. Hello, hello, and welcome to Well, There's Your Problem. It's a podcast about engineering disasters with slides. Um, I'm Justin Rosniak. I'm the person who is talking right now. My pronouns are he and him. Okay, go. I am Alice Caldwell Kelly. I am the person who is talking now. My pronouns are she and her. Liam. Hey, Liam. Hi, I'm Liam Anderson. Uh, (laughs) I'm the colony of bacteria piloting Liam Anderson. I'm I'm the corpse of Liam Anderson. Yes, I am sick. Uh, My pronouns are he, him. I'm going to spend most of this episode on mute, simply so you don't hear me sniffle every 30 seconds. Nice. Uh, I know the people love their sniffles, but uh, yeah, I'm not going to do that to you. I'm not going to Alice Caldwell Kelly your asses. And we have a guest. Hello, guest. We have have a guest. Hello, I am Kate Wagner. I'm an architecture critic. My pro my pronouns are she her. And 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 you 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 know a lot about architectural acoustics. Why is that, Kate? Tell us. Tell us. Yeah, I went to grad school. Oh, oh, rookie mistake. <laughs> <laughs> I yeah. dropped out of grad I know, so true about grad school. I was very close to doing that. But I finished, and I wrote my thesis on concert halls from mid-century. Uh, so yeah, I know oh, a lot about this, is one. this subject. <laughs> this is... This, this concert hall changed everything in architectural acoustics. Uh, I, I assume I mean, for that's the like better, kind of right? an understatement. It was yes for the better. I would say like this was kind of like the Pruitt Igo, or I guess not even really like the, but like you know what I mean. Like this was like the thing that like initiated an entire discourse that changed a field that happened around the same time. And modernism was like a subject in that field, even though like with Pruitt Igo, for example, uh, like there were other factors involved that for the failure that almost none of them were architectural actually. Involved, hmm. like public funding and racism and all kinds of things, but Avery Fisher Hall, Philharmonic Hall, David Geffen Hall, you know whatever it's called now, and the, the hall ha- we are have, looking at have fewer names. <laughs> just pick one. Please you should you one. shouldn't be allowed to like bribe a uh, Philharmonic by being like, here is fifty million dollars. Put my name on the fucking thing. Yeah, the thing is, is that, like, what we're talking about now is uh, Philharmonic Hall, the first iteration of uh, of Avery Fisher Hall, which which I know it as Avery Fisher Hall because that's its name. They changed the name right when I was in the middle of grad school, so very annoying because <laughs> I was writing a thesis. But, uh, like, this is kind of like a Theseus's ship situation now at this point. Because this hall has just been completely gutted, and now it's being gutted for a third time. This is like a cursed, truly a cursed project. Uh, the hopefully the actual actually the signs now point to it's going to be good again, which or good for the first time because the acoustic stuff that they're doing is like what they should should do. Because uh, we have like the science and stuff now. But anyways, like I guess we should start later. from the beginning. <laughs> well, first, truly a nightmare. Yeah, so. Yes, go ahead. But first, we have to do the goddamn news. Okay. Um, 
It's uh, the goddamn Washington, news. It's the goddamn news. news. Washington Metro fucked up again. Oh, this no. train derailed three times, <laughs> apparently. It yes. Uh, what? Last week, the blue line. Um, there was a train between I think Roslyn and Arlington Cemetery. Uh, derailed three times. The third time, it didn't manage to rerail itself. Um, you know, which is uh, uh, it's the little train a, that could, and then could, and then could, and then could, and then could, could, and then really couldn't. So right now, Metro has every single seven thousand series train um, out of service because of axle defects that led to this derailment. As I understood it this morning, although I think there was just a press release saying it might have been something else. Um, and that means um, today, Monday, October 18th, the Metro has the capability to run exactly 40 trains all day. Is, is, oh, is, is that no. a lot? Is that a lot? That sounds like a lot. You know, well, Alice, I see how you would think that, but no. Bear in mind, the Glasgow subway is the smallest, tiny little model <laughs> train thing in the world. So it's true. They're, they're running like 30 minute headways today. Art the fuck. <laughs> that sucks. <laughs> is this the red line? Is this the red line? The blue line. blue line. The blue line. Well, I think it's every line. Oh, wow. For once, it is not the red line. <laughs> yes. Red line, just so hot right now. Mm. Yes. Get it? Because it catches on fire all the fucking time. That's why it's the red line. I, I, yeah, the red is for flames. I am constantly impressed by how badly Metro can fuck something up. Dude, every just, day it feels like. <laughs> I, I, I used to, like, wish we had, like, a big metro-like system here in Philly, you know, because it goes more places, and I'm yeah, like, and you well, don't no. wish that anymore. No, I don't wish no. that anymore. I wish, well, I'm glad we have a, a subway that works. <laughs> I just saw a New York Times article that a woman was sexually assaulted on an L train, and there were at least eight uh, passengers in the car, and none of them did anything. Oh, boy. So your friendly reminder to intervene in that shit. Mm. It's gonna be fine. Worst case scenario, you get a stab wound. <laughs> yeah, that's fine. Yeah, I'm yeah. not sure that's the approach I would take when yeah. trying to like exhort people to intervene and stuff. But yes, yes. Don't don't don't. <laughs> don't worst case scenario, don't you be a good die. German. But still, yeah, it's worth it. It's worth it to die. Be an adult. Yeah, die with yeah. honor. Yeah, exactly. This is this has been the die with honor podcast. Yeah, and yes. now we will all commit sepulchre. Nice. <laughs> that's right. Speaking of dying with honor. God, that's so loud. Yeah, I know. Uh, Colin Powell died of COVID. Sort died of. with COVID. Yeah, he had yeah. cancer. We should point <laughs> that out. He was also 87 years old. Yeah, he was he fully was vaccinated, but there's been a lot of like, oh, well, he was fully vaccinated takes. And it's like, yes, but he also had cancer. Uh yeah. He was a war criminal who uh many times, lied. many times yeah. from from Vietnam to Iraq all the way through to Iraq again. Yeah, we could only hope to have a, a record as horrific and bloody as Colin Powell. Guy who did the cover up of the My Lai massacre. Did he? Yeah. I actually didn't know that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's it's how like, he uh, like made his bones. That was like oh, okay. his big deal in Vietnam. Was he uh he helped cover that shit up? What's the what's the mm -hmm. equivalent of like uh Throwing the coin into the into the fountain in Rome for like doing war crimes in Iraq <laughs> 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 to ensure you'll return to do more war crimes. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, and I mean, like, again, the the sanest person in in the Bush administration during the lead up to uh, the war in Iraq too, which of course did not stop him from going to the UN with a little fake vial of anthrax to lie about it. So clearly, his conscience didn't trouble him that much, and it killed a like uh, what, like two million people. Uh, you know, what's two million people between France? Yeah, uh, that's right. <laughs> Don't worry, it's all human life. Anyway, rest <laughs> in peace, bitch. Yep. I like rest in peace, bitch. That I was gonna say rest <laughs> in piss, but then I, I like stumbled and I said the nice thing instead. Oh, well, look at you. I know, I know. I'm really disappointed we are, we in myself. We are a good-hearted podcast. That's uh, right, that's right. I'm sick. Got a got a sort of a, a storied legacy of public service, uh, you know, which also included things like uh, invading Panama. Um, Winston. Oh, Winston. Sorry. Hello, Winston. Wait, Winston. Winston doesn't like the idea of invading Panama. No, Winston. No, should Winston. he? Good point. Yeah, he doesn't. Good point. Wait, well, Winston, um, gotta gotta Otherwise, you're gonna go to the other room. Hate to see it. Hate to see. Uh, hate to see Colin Powell die. But do you, you know, though? No, no, not really. The thing not is, though, I, 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 I thought, I thought, I thought that like Kissinger would go first, but then I also no, Kissinger thought Kissinger never goes first. That, that was that's your first the thing. mistake. No. Yeah, that's the that's the no. other thing, right? Because Kissinger is never gonna die. I figured if you just do enough evil shit in the service of the State Department, you it's it, it like insulates all of your vital organs from your many diseases, and you just don't die. So clearly, gonna... Colin Powell should have started like a third or fourth war. I mean, you're already you're already playing with house money, right? Kissinger like, is just—he did enough war oh crimes that he's going to sort of evolve into a war crimes mentat from Dune. Yeah, you know? exactly, exactly. Colin Powell is never going to become the front of a sandworm now, and no. that's, that's 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 a shame. That's a shame. It's a you know, it's a it's a smirch on his legacy, mm -hmm, which, mm -hmm. as we know, was previously untainted <laughs> and good. That's right. That's right. Anyway, that was the goddamn news. Okay, we're going to start with a question, as usual. Oh, God. What yes. is acoustics? It's a thing that you use in Winamp, which, incidentally, thank you for the huge hit of nostalgia there. <laughs> really whips the llama's ass. Downloading Winamp skins at 3am, <laughs> what yeah. you doing? No, I'm, I'm, I'm not doing Socratic method today. I'm actually throwing this to Kate. <laughs> Kate, our fearless leader. What is acoustics? Uh, it's when the waves, the sound waves. Yes. Acoustics is the science of sound. Uh, it's the, it includes a number of fields, including physics, like physical acoustics, which is, you know, sound waves, that kind of thing, how sound works. Uh, like in the abstract, like, mathematically that kind of thing it includes like all kinds of fields like geoacoustics which is basically mostly used for drilling for oil uh bioacoustics which is used for like hearing bats talk and stuff which is very cool one of the cooler fields in acoustics uh see these are all very hard sciences right uh and then we've got architectural acoustics which is a science in the same way that architecture is a science which is to say it's not there is <laughs> science behind architectural acoustics and there's engineering. You can be an acoustical engineer. Uh, and that means also doing things like making speakers, which I used to do at a company when I was an intern back in the day. And uh, like making recordings, like all kinds of applied acoustics is what we would say. But like architectural acoustics is funny because to give you an example of where the science is, 
Um, we still need a supercomputer at Rensselaer to model how sound, to model visually sound as a wave in a room, in a simple cube, actually, uh, to, to do that, that visual modeling. So if anyone tells you that, like, we can model and we will know what a room will sound like before it's built, they're lying. The truth <laughs> of the matter is, is that we can make very educated guesses about how sound, a room will sound. Uh, and like the more complex the room, the less predictable it is. This is the case with like the Elf for Harmony, for example, which is very famous, very expensive, and is a really, really weird room because they put so much diffusion in there to break up sound that like certain things just sound weird in there. Uh, whether or not people will like it, you know, 50 years from now, we'll have to see. Sometimes people like a hall when it opens and think it's crap. 50 years from now, it takes about 50 years for Hall's reputation to, uh, to really be solidified. But sometimes, uh, there's, there's always been these stories of, of people trusting the science too much, uh, and to the point where bad things happen. And to be fair, like the science has come a long way, but most of that science isn't modeling so much as it is measurement. We've become really good at taking microphones and speakers into concert halls and being able to measure and 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 like to some extent model how sound works in a space however uh and so some for some this reason when we're when acousticians do a really big concert hall project for example they'll do things like build like a scale a one to four scale model or something like a scale model that is like the size of a small room with like and then they'll run measurements in that model that's like one of the safest ways to model how a room will sound because the truth of the matter is is that the computer modeling and things like that. It just isn't there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it won't be there probably for uh, several years. So we can visually model existing rooms and we are really good at measuring them. And, and we've really come a long way in understanding how sound works in rooms, not only like architecturally, but like, you know, things like, um, like psychoacoustically, uh, like how, uh, things yeah, psychoacoustically like- is when you play the mm-hmm. scary, like knife noises from the movie. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you just play the yeah, psycho exactly, soundtrack exactly. at full blast. But like the role that like the ear, the human ear plays in acoustics, uh, and like there, but and also the auditory nerve. So it's a really interesting, it's a really interesting field. But like a lot of a lot of science, a lot of uh, or like a lot of applied science, like you know, architectural acoustics is kind of mostly design, um, and the science bit of it is there's engineering, and it's like very serious engineering. Like I don't want to like give the impression that it's not. But the but it's not engineering in the way that like people like engineer like jet engines or something like there's a lot of there's a lot of things that are difficult to predict and model and measure. Uh, And so the truth of the matter is, is that we still won't know what a room will sound like until that room is built. And there's still which is why the field relies so heavily on precedent. Um, Things that have worked like will continue to work. Uh, which is why for the last like 10 years, like every concert hall, major concert hall that's been built has been built sort of in the style of like Walt Disney Concert Hall by by Frank Gehry in 2003. That was finished in t- 2003. It's really a 90s concert hall. Um, but uh, it's really that that vineyard style hall because we know that works. It produces like really nice architecture. It's like a satisfying like acoustic environment. Um, people feel like enveloped by the sound, like this, we've been studying how vineyard hall works, vineyard style halls or semi vineyard style halls work since the sixties. And so we can produce relatively, um, accurately like a hall that will sound good. 
But when you start to experience, see, this is like the, this is a catch 22, right? Like when you want to experiment and you want to do something different, you it comes with the risk of things going wrong. Mm. Um, and so, but, but like, this brings us to, to Philharmonic Hall, like Philharmonic Hall was like a massive embarrassing failure for the, for the science of acoustics. Like it's probably its biggest failure in the history of its, of its time since it's not, a, it's not an old field. Acoustics. Like there have been like things like, you know, like organ, organ builders and stuff in like medieval ages or whatever. But like the actual science of architectural acoustics didn't exist until the beginning of the 20th century with the um, with the work of Harvard physicist uh, Wallace Sabin. And Wallace Sabin's a really interesting guy because he basically was like a like an adjunct professor who like got assigned like the shittiest room imaginable to like do a lecture in. And he was like so ups- he was so pissed at this room, which was like an art gallery at Harvard, was so shitty that like he decided to invent an entirely new field of science to fix it. I mean, that's the best possible yeah, reason to do, do that. that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. His, his working conditions were bad. And so he was like, you know what? We got to figure this out. So he went across the street to like the church, some church and brought back a bunch of cushions from the pews. And he would, like, basically take, like, these crude measurements of, like, what would happen, like, whenever he added a new cushion to this, to, like, the, the uh, like, delay or the, the reverberation of the, of the sound of, of an impulse, which in this case was him blowing through a tube uh, or him blowing through an organ pipe. Um, and so it's so funny because, like, he just, like, created the math behind what's known as, like, the uh, reverberation equation or the Sabin equation reverberation time and by doing that by quantifying that he was able to he basically found it the beginning of architectural acoustics but it's because his room sucked like he was really just like if his labor conditions were better this would have someone else would have done it and it wouldn't have been as good of a story but anyways philharmonic hall really fascinating uh let's get to it uh so this is a great story because it has it also touch touches on like all the other bad things that were happening with modernism and like yeah. urban renewal and all that. Well, I thought, I thought a fun place to start would be, you yeah. know, sort of some of the, some of the history of architectural acoustics before, before there was any science behind it. Um, you know, just this, this famous, yes. uh, or the, this quote here from uh, Charles Garnier who did, you know, the Paris opera, he said, I gave myself yeah. pains to master this bizarre science of acoustics but nowhere did I find a positive rule to guide me. On the contrary, nothing but contradictory statements. I must explain that I adopted no principle, that my plan has been based on no theory, and I leave success or failure to chance alone. Hell like an yes, acrobat- dude. <laughs> like That's an acrobat who closes his eyes and clings to the ropes die. of an ascending balloon. <laughs> Fuck around and apparently find <laughs> out. Yeah. And and that's that's so the uh, that's the theory behind the uh, the main auditorium at the Paris Opera. Um, is People there is no seem theory. to like it? I we guess. Just, uh, yeah. f- fuck it, we'll do it live. <laughs> I like that. I appreciate <laughs> yeah, that. Yeah, truly, it's funny because opera is interesting because opera houses were shaped architecturally more by like social strata than they were acoustics. Like it was all about like the rich people being seen and like the poor's not being seen. So that had like architectural consequences. Uh, and it, that's always been the case throughout the history of performing art spaces. Like, for example, like before, before uh, when, when, like, for example, when classical music and was only a, f- a figment of the aristocracy, 
Uh, and you had like core composers and all of this, like music rooms were designed for like small, pe- small numbers of people. And like, uh, were really like social institutions more than they were places for like this, it had to sound good. And up until like the 19th century, when people listened to classical music, they were also just like walking around, like talking, fucking off, basically faffing about. And like the, the idea of like the silent reverent concert hall, is like actually a really bourgeois idea that came from listening practices in the 19th century when the public concert became a thing and like you had the emerge uh, like the emergence of like the bourgeoisie and bourgeois culture and so like the bourgeoisie had to do what we're often finding things that made them look like they were like like aristocratic and so things like stratified seating in public concert halls based on concert ticket prices um things like uh the the obsession with silence and like with like this kind of like etiquette of the concert hall, which like actual aristocrats like never really cared about. Uh, it's actually just like bourgeois people and their obsession with quiet. Uh, and yeah, it's a really all of like what we know about like classical music, concert going culture was basically invented by like upper middle class people in the 19th century. And so because of this, like because of all of these different social factors, concert hall design uh, was really kind of based on the current architectural practices of the time, which were neoclassical in style. Uh, so like temple-like buildings, um, like, for example, the Music Brian in Vienna, uh, or any kind of 19th century concert hall, the Concertgebouw in Amsterdam. These are all very neoclassical, uh, high uh, romantic era neoclassical buildings. And they, well, it just so happened, actually, that the, the combined taste for things that looked like temples and the current taste for architect- like a bunch of like overdone weepy architectural ornament from like all different periods of like the neo of like the classical era, uh, mostly Greek but some Roman, and also like the predilection for stratified seating, uh, so that rich people could show off, and also the current practices of building ventilation, which required clerestory windows at the highest level of the concert hall, so they can like let out all like the farts and smoke and stuff. All of these things combined accidentally made a really fucking good concert hall actually uh like the shoe the 19th century shoebox style concert halls are some of the best in the world and they basically did it not because of like the science of architectural acoustics which didn't exist yet but because of a combination this combination of like social factors architectural factors uh like and engineering factors uh, so so, so what you're saying is so so the like sort of 19th century class system is scientifically the best way to organize a concert hall by accident. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. That was exactly kind of how it happened. Uh, But it's funny because like the actual, the ventilation stuff, because they didn't yet, they had gas lamps at the time. That was actually very important too. And why um, concert halls uh, sound so well. It's, uh, (laughs) it's, it's really fascinating to me um, because like, if they didn't have those, that, that ventilation at the top that like, they have a bunch of basically empty space above the highest seated listener that like a let that allowed, like, because the heat from the chandeliers was really hot. And so no one would want to sit up there. Uh, like you had to like have these windows that you could open to ventilate the space and they had to be suitable, certifiably big enough to do that. What and it ended up doing was creating like this, like what we call warmth in a concert hall. Because you have space above the highest seated listener, it creates spaciousness. This the sensation of being enveloped in sound, um, like which we usually like in lay like warmth is actually has more to do with like bass response. 
but like it is it, it, it as like a vibe, I guess, less than like a, a technical term. That spaciousness is what makes those concert halls so great because it's just actually the right amount of people in the hall, the right amount of spaciousness, the right am- use of materials in a way that, that makes it like reverberant and like really like lovely, but not like too wet, not too echoey. Um, so it's, it's actually really fascinating to me personally, how like a bunch of shit just came together in a way that really worked. I think it's a really great metaphor for the field as a whole. Asking, asking if my concert hall is creepy yeah. or wet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so true. So true about wet, not a great word. But like, it is like, as opposed to dry, which is like not reverberant at all. <laughs> wet. Yeah, <but laughs> sound, Our sound, concert sound halls were too wet, yes. Yeah. It was very moist. Yeah. Oh. Ben Shapiro's wife. No. Yeah, this concert hall is just dripping. <laughs> oh, I'm pointy as hell. It is dripping. Hey Justin, how do you, how do you get to Carnegie Hall? How how do you get to Practice. Carnegie? Oh, one day we'll play Carnegie Hall and they'll <laughs> boo us off stage. <laughs> yeah, we'll do the Boston molasses flood at Carnegie Hall. So uh, Yankees suck, right? As I'm being pelted with cans. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You're probably more into like some kind of other. You, you you what you go up there and do is shit talk squash or something. Mm, yeah, yeah, you heard about <laughs> racquetball? I say yeah. Columbia is the seventh best school in the Ivy League 10,000 times until I'm <laughs> escorted off stage with one of those giant hooks. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Thank you. All right. so, I'm so. dying. Yeah, try try not to try not to go out like Colin Powell. Yeah. yeah. Well, this is sort of this is sort of where our story starts, right? Um you know, it's an old-fashioned, big auditorium, good acoustics. There's the home in the New York City Philharmonic, um, Philharmonic Orchestra. And the 50s, everyone's like, this is an old-fashioned thing. Let's, uh, and its owner wanted to redevelop it, so they didn't renew the lease of the Philharmonic, right? Mm. What is a Philharmonic, yeah. anyway? It's just a symphony. Oh, I love harmony. Orchestra. They love harmony. Orchestra. Mm. It's an orchestra that loves harmony. Okay, gotcha. That's true. Yeah. So it, Carnegie Hall, actually, like acoustically speaking, is not that great. Uh, basically, like at the t- like Saban actually was a really great acoustician, even though he was the first acoustician. And he knew for he worked, for example, on Boston Symphony Hall, which is one of the greatest symphony halls ever. And he because he understood like not completely, but like to some extent, like the role he, that like designing it like a shoebox style hall was really like a good idea. Um, and like, he, he was like very intent on trying to figure out like why, and, but he knew based on precedent that, that, that style of hall worked. Uh, but at the same time, like Saban went off, got drafted into world war one and got shot and died in like, at like the age of 30. So oh, like man. the, the oh, world of no. acoustics changed like quite a bit after that. Yeah. So, uh, he was like, kind of like a bit of a, a hero, uh, in, in acoustics because he was actually just right about acoustics before uh but anyways like the people took his science and decided to like apply it in kind of like the like the first early crude ways um and so like again like you have a a modern this is again a social change you have differences in like the concert going public more and more people not just bourgeois people could were going to concerts at the beginning of the 20th century and so you had to just 
the things like sight lines become way, way more important than for, and selling tickets than like um, acoustics or whatever. And then also like changes in architecture, the Beaux-Arts style was more conducive to like an auditorium of the size. Anyways, it's the same pattern that happens over and over again. But the truth is, is that the New York Philharmonic had like kind of outgrown Carnegie Hall. Um, and they wanted something new and it just so happens that like urban renewal was happening. <laughs> oh yeah. And they could just, yeah, let's, let's go into that. Yeah. So this is, this is a fun one because oh, we're looking God. at the, what uh, they bulldoze? the failure, you know, the best laid plans of federal housing legislation happened here. <laughs> you know, in 1937, there was the Wagner-Steagall yes. Act right? And provides federal uh, subsidies to housing authorities to replace substandard housing with new public housing. You know, there's a specific stipulation in there that you replace it one for one. You can't actually build more housing than existed there before. You got to demolish the build because they thought it would uh, adversely affect the housing market if uh, you built lots of new public housing, right? Um, you know, yeah, in for that, the better. Yeah, exactly. For the better, obviously. But you know that we're you know this is this is built with the sympathy. Well, this legislation has lots country. of sympathies for landlords. You know, uh, um, and then what what exactly is substandard housing? Well, that's left as an exercise to the housing authority. Um, now this is this power is expanded in 1949 with Taft, Ellender, Wagner. Right, this provides cities with a whole big pot of cash for something called slum clearance under a under Title I, right, which basically to fund any project that replaces substandard housing with anything, right? Like a concert hall. Like a concert hall. Could be a park, could even be middle income or even luxury housing. There's another, there's Title Three of that same act authorized a bunch of funding for public housing, but a lot of planners and politicians had, you know, other ideas, right? Mm. Mm-hmm. And one of those guys was, of course, Robert Moses. Friend of the um, show. A friend of the show, Robert Moses. Uh, still won't come on for some reason. I don't know. <laughs> Just exhume his corpse and be like, Robert, tell, tell me about the bridges. We're doing a cadaver synod, but with, uh, <laughs> on a, in podcast form. It's about time. Had it coming. Yeah. So he's famous for, you know, the roads and the highways and the bridges. He was also chairman of the mayor's committee on slum clearance. And he used his Title I funds extensively for all kinds of things which were not low-income housing, right? Um, you know, a lot of times they would just go in, you'd condemn houses and tenements, you'd demolish them, then you'd hand off the land to private developers to build modern, you know, apartment towers, right? And determining what was a slum was highly racialized, and the program was just an engine of mass displacement and infliction of misery, right? Hmm. And in the early 50s, when this program was really in full swing, Moses was struck by a series of coincidences, right? Mm. Fordham University wanted a new campus. Metropolitan Opera thought it had inadequate facilities. An ice cream truck driving <laughs> down outside my window. I don't know if my microphone's going to pick that up, but if so, please enjoy. I'm, I'm getting a little bit of ice cream truck, yeah. <laughs> oh, I would go for some ice cream right now. It wouldn't help me, but uh, yeah. So yeah, the 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 Metropolitan Opera had inadequate facilities. The Philharmonic was being kicked out of Carnegie Carnegie Hall, which they kind of wanted to leave anyway. Uh, and the cogs started turning in Moses's head, and he realized the solution here 
was to build an incredible new cultural center with facilities for the opera, the Philharmonic, a new Fordham campus and other cultural facilities, right? Including the uh, LaGuardia High School for the Performing Arts, uh, relocated Juilliard School, a new home for the New York Ballet and a whole bunch of other cultural accoutrements, right? Mm. And um, also 4,400 apartments and 400 of those apartments would actually be low income. Incredible, right? I mean, God, it's fucking, it's so grim that it's like better than today's. Yeah. <laughs> well, 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 hold on a second. Mm. Um, now, this plan was set in motion in 1957. It was uh, going to be located in a neighborhood called San Juan Hill, right? Uh, John D. Rockefeller III started fundraising for the whole shebang, and soon it was clear the Lincoln Center was happening. Yeah. Here it is in 1924-ish, San Juan Hill, which also was, was also known as Lincoln Square at the time. The people who lived there called it San Juan Hill, um, but Lincoln Square was the official name of the neighborhood. Uh, out of curiosity, right. what was the sort of like a, a demographic of San Juan Hill? I'm glad you asked. It was uh, New York City's most heavily populated African-American community. Of course, uh, Also a lot of Caribbean-Americans there, uh. right? Um, it's no, crazy it. how this always seems to happen along racial lines. <laughs> Surely just a coincidence. It's a bunch of weird coincidences. It's a bunch of you weird coincidences. See, uh, you can see you got Columbus Circle down here. Here's Central Park. You got the New York Central West Side Yards over here. This is now a bunch of Trump Towers. Um, right. Although I think they, take the, they took the Trump name off most of them. Right here, this area that's been pre-highlighted in red, this is where the Lincoln Center was going to go. But in addition to that, they demolished several blocks down here for Fordham. They demolished some stuff over here for housing. I think all the way up to here was various other crap, right? <clears throat> so they, they took out a lot. And so the city just condemns this whole neighborhood with the exception of one building, which they decided to purchase for well above market price. Well, that's funny how that works, too. Because it was owned by Robert F. Kennedy. Oh, okay. <laughs> LMAO, I didn't actually know about that part. <laughs> so, now, for the cultural center and the 4,400 apartments, um, 7,700 people and 800 businesses were displaced. Um, most of them wound up moving to Harlem, but they did have the right to compete over the 400 low-income apartments. Oh, I'm sure that was conducted in a perfectly, like, sort of orderly way. Oh, yeah, I don't think, I don't think anyone really moved back into the project area. There's no point. You know, especially since not only were you displaced, but the place you worked was displaced. Mm. So yeah, this is uh, this is your standard yes. urban renewal here. <laughs> well, it's renewed. Yes, yep. renewed. Okay, can I also add like one little thing? Oh yeah, is which is that there was also like a Cold War element to this, where there was like lots of internal talks amongst like Rockefeller and donors about like creating like a palace for music to show like the Soviet Union that America was really good and cared about the arts. And it's very funny to me that, like, they did this by, like, displacing, like, the working class, which, like, I'm sure the Soviet Union would have taken notice of. <laughs> well, it was interesting because they're actually, L like... all the way around. It's Big L. <laughs> the L stands for Lincoln. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So there were big, you know, they, they demolished all these tenements, right? There's big, big protests about this, actually. You can see folks protesting here, uh, holding signs like shelter before culture. You know, humane progress means decent relocation. 
uh, you know, $47.50 a room. Progress for whom? Mm. That's an interesting one. And grammatical too. Yes. Um, you know, and they, 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 a bunch of groups file lawsuits to get the project stopped, you know, and uh, these are treated with contempt and, you know, thrown out. I mean, Title I slum clearance means you can do anything, right? Um, and they start construction on what was to be called um, Philharmonic Hall, right? Um, and being an auditorium, it required some special considerations during construction. Uh, they had a special architect, uh, Max Abramovitz, right? And a special consulting firm that did acoustics, Bolt, Baranek, and Newman, um, which apparently is now part of Raytheon. Huh. Um, Everything they, eventually is just yeah, part of Raytheon. They have the second oldest extant domain name, bbn.com, registered April 24th, 1985. Huh. Thank you. Thank you, Ross. <laughs> yes. It's a fun fact. Yes. That actually is a fun There's fact. There's lots of fun facts about Bolt Bragan. Yeah. Everything's so, a fun fact when it comes back to Raytheon. <laughs> this is what I said that there's. So Bolperanicker Newman was uh, one of the first modern acoustics firms. Um, and they, so it's funny, the reason why they got in, first of all, they got into the internet really early. Um, and second of all, like uh, they also, the reason why they became Raytheon is because basically Bolperanic and Newman financed their like high culture stuff for uh, acoustics by also doing acoustical work uh, such as like, you know, measurements for developing measurement standards for noise, like working with aircraft, all kinds of other things that was that helped fund the war machine. Mm, uh, lots of jet make, it, make, stuff. make it more efficient. This this was yeah, very much like general dynamics vibes, you know what I mean? But like mm. the, the cultural stuff they did was almost like kind of on the side, but it was like the um it was the big project of Leo Baranek, who was the second B in BBN. Bolt and Newman were more into the other stuff. Anyways, but before, like, all of the Cold War, like I said, there's always a Cold War angle, but Leo Baranek is kind of, is a fascinating guy. Um, he died, like, my second year of grad school, so I never got to talk to him, which truly devastating. Uh, but he is basically considered the father of, like, modernist acoustics, one would say. But he was also a great historian of concert halls. And his, he was very intent on, uh, and my own work in, in acoustics as an academic follows in this tradition pretty much almost exactly, is very big on going around the world and cataloging uh, and measuring and understanding different concert halls. His first uh, book, Music, Acoustics, and Architecture, was published in 1962. And it basically features like about like 100 concert halls um, that uh, like he went around and did like acoustic measurements in and studied and like provides like the plans and sections and like the history. It's actually, all of his books are really lovely. Um, he did, there's three, there's three editions of, of this book. Um, and, uh, the last one I think was published in like 2004, but like, don't quote me on that, but they're all really good. Uh, very important in my own research, very important in the history of architectural acoustics. Cause kind of without Leo Branick, like we wouldn't have nearly as much of the history of the field. Um, and he, but because he he went around and studied why concert halls work or why he thought they worked, uh, like I remind you again that like the science of acoustics, like this is before the age of the computer. 
this is like when we were basically using like field recording equipment to do to measurements where you would fire off a shotgun in a hall and or like pop a balloon and like have a yeah you would fire a shotgun uh, off in a hall and like and like measure the like record it and measure the amount of time it took to for the sound to dissipate this is how we did why don't you still do that i did not know that frank furnace was the first acoustician in his office. <laughs> You'd be, the reason is the <laughs> the reason is because we're not allowed to travel with pistols anymore. Uh, also, we develop more complex, like standard uh, tests for re- measuring reverberation time more accurately. But this was kind of like a crude operation, uh, and yet because of like what what was considered at the time to be like modern modern science. Um, like Baranek really thought he knew everything about concert halls and he thought he knew what makes a really good concert hall. Uh, some of his, but the thing is, is like, he didn't know everything. Um, not even nearly. Uh, so it's really, it's really, he totally, I mean, he devised basically this comprehensive plan, believing that like his careful scientific calibrations and whatnot would produce a great concert hall worthy of like Lincoln Center's ambitious project. It was really kind of a surgical top-down approach. That's really no different from like technocratic planning. Uh, Moses employed with, with some clearance. Um, but it was, un- yeah, it's very interesting that like basically Brannick and his colleagues who at the time were Russell Johnson and Theodore shorts and BG waters, all of whom became successful independent acquisitions of the, in their own right. Um, they believe that careful placement of certain architectural and technical elements based on like the latest concepts in acoustics could help mitigate the acoustical problems in the modern concert hall. Um, the thing is, is the Philharmonic Society really wanted to have a concert hall that sounded like a 19th century shoebox, but they wanted it within the modernist architectural sensibility of uh, like the architecture of Max Abramovitz, uh, and of course, like again, more integration stuff with like modern urban planning. So Baranek originally conceived Philharmonic Hall to take on the shoebox shape of its inspiration, which was Boston Symphony Hall. But he had to fit this shape into like a modernist building. Uh, And this ended up contributing to its downfall. First of all, like it was known at the time, thanks to the work of Baranek himself, that the success of the 19th century shoebox hall was partially attributable to the varying decorative architectural embellishments, which acted like to diffuse sound and break it up in a way that was like satisfying and created uh, ambiance and warmth and whatever. However, like Baranek himself laments in his reflection on Philharmonic Hall after one year of its use, quote, contemporary architectural taste tends towards simplicity and deliberately avoids the elaborative decorative elements that provide multiple diffusing surfaces in the older halls. The extensive, quote, contouring of the older halls also acted to break up any large flat surfaces that might create echoes. In addition, the 19th century shoebox halls had like high ceilings to provide a suitably long reverberation time, meaning it sounds spacious and nice. Mm. However, Philharmonic Hall, which was, you know, Max Abramovitz being a modernist building, kept a really low stratified profile that was not tall enough to provide this necessary ceiling height, like I talked about before. Yeah, it should and have so been more bourgeois. This is like the biggest problem. <laughs> you should have been more so bourgeois. Totally got to be more, more bougie. But no, they should have used gas lamps, and then they would have had to ventilate the space, and then they would have had the necessary ceiling. Gas but alas, they had electricity okay, now. Girl, girl boss. boss, yes, Eve, girl boss, exactly. So Baranek had to basically mitigate these problems with a variety of solutions, some of which were like increasingly crackpot. 
uh, including, so they tried, first of all, to do like a reflecting array of overhead ceiling panels, which I think you can see in the pictures. Oh, I got that uh, later in order on to send the slides, what they call yeah. early, oh, what they call like early reflections to the center of the main floor. But unfortunately, the gaps between these panels, because they had to be pretty and modernist, would be too, were too wide, and therefore their ability to actually reflect sound was greatly diminished. Uh, and there's also, like, they had this weird stage wall that featured, quote, an acoustically transparent slatted structure, end quote, that aimed to hide unsightly ventilation outlets. Again, modernism. It's air-conditioned. Yeah. Behind which was a reflective wall. All of these were solutions to the problems with the architectural concept, rather than like Baranek and his colleagues' original intent for a good concert hall. And these corrections were not enough, for the hall was like a massive failure, Despite and despite attempts at improvement, it was ultimately gutted and replaced with Avery Fisher Hall in 1976. Uh, see, okay, but the thing is, is that like the greed of developers and elites who wanted to gain like monetary and cultural capital at the expense of, you know, 14 blocks where people lived and worked, combined with like an absolutely dogmatic architectural and urbanist programming that allowed for no flexibility for even like the actual program of what it was supposed to be doing. Um, that's really what kind of sealed Philharmonic Hall's fate. Uh, mm. Oh yeah. This is yeah. like really funny. Okay. We get to the funniest part actually, which like is called the seat dip effect incident. Oh, no. oh boy. Uh, so yeah. Yeah. So Did someone say the dip? Elite so- sponsors. <laughs> yeah. That's right. We're getting dipped. The elite sponsors of Philharmonic Hall wanted to maximize seat count in order to maximize the amount of profit for concert. Because again, this is like capitalist bullshit. Oh, hold on, Kate. You're being getting an ahead elite of me luxury here because I got a whole slide on this too. <laughs> okay, 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 okay. I'll stop. <laughs> yeah. I'll stop. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, you know, uh, uh, Baranek, you know, I'd done a number of auditorium projects, right? I, I looked over some of the. Just some of the Philharmonic archives, I saw like the, uh, the, the, what's it like? He came up with 18 properties of an auditorium after the big survey you mentioned. Some of them seem to be quantitative. Some of them are qualitative. I, I had some difficulty figuring them out. I, I don't know what I'm talking about, you know, but they were very, yeah, you, you, yeah. You're stuck with Charles Garnier. Uh, yeah, just being exactly. like, yeah, you know, whatever feels right. Um, Stay loose, you know. Mm-hmm. But there were, yeah, there were some issues with uh, with the um, with the with, with the actual putting together of the building, right? Which is why we need to return to the slide I had the last time Kate was on, way back in episode four. Been a while. It's been a minute. Been a while. How the building is designed and built. A guy takes a poop in a field. <laughs> Things go downhill from there. So, you know, we got the client. In this case, it's a committee of people, right, who mm. want the building. And they tell the architect, in this case, uh, uh, Max Abramovitz, like, okay, here's, here's a building. This is what we want. This is, this is our idea. And then the architect says, what the hell are these guys thinking as to go about turning their vague idea into a workable building. There's some back and forth here. The architect sends their drawing to the engineers, in this case, including an acoustics guy. You know, once again, these engineers go through the architect's drawing set and says, what the hell, what the hell are these people doing? They start fighting with each other and the architect about what goes where, what's practical. There's more back and forth here. The HVAC guy roots a duct straight through an I-beam. There's conflicts <laughs> with the plumbing, right? So on and so forth, right? 
But eventually, <laughs> eventually they finish fighting with each other. And, you know, someone puts a PE stamp on there, right? Which means someone is criminally liable if something goes wrong. You know, there's different stamps, you know, in Jersey, it's a crimper. Um, and these are sent out for permitting. The drawings are sent out for permitting and the inspectors are not engineers. In a lot of places, the stamp is there. Nothing goes wrong. We get to the next step quickly. The contractors take the drawing and say, fucking hell, these mm-hmm. chuckle fucks. <laughs> and, and they, they send the drawings out to some contra- contract or subcontractors who look at those drawings and say, what the fuck? And Jesus H. Christ, right? They make modifications to the drawings, send back shop drawings showing what they can build and what they intend to build. Architects and engineers sign off or say, no, you dumb idiot, you have to do it this way. There's more back and forth here. And then, you know, you have the labor who's actually building the damn building. And they're constantly complaining about all the boneheaded decisions made above them. And of course, they know the most about building, but they're least able to make design changes since you got to go way up the chain of command, right? The architect Mm. comes back and does the as-built drawings, which I've complained about previously. Uh, And the client's been meddling the whole time in this. And the architect's been trying to herd all these cats the whole time, right? Um, And, uh, you know, so in in summary, it's a goddamn miracle anything gets built. And government contracting is even worse. Now, in this case, we're doing quasi-government contracting, right? So Mm. for the Lincoln Center, rather than being one guy who wanted the building, there's a building committee, right? Which was composed of all kinds of stakeholders in the project. So you had a real estate guy, you had a guy from the Philharmonic Orchestra, you had an opera guy, you had politicians. And they may or may not know anything about buildings or auditoriums. And the building committee was subjects to its own whims and desires. And so Abramovitz tried to coordinate everything through his office. Um, did this work? No. Oh. <laughs> I, I think one thing which was a big mistake is they published the design in the New York Times Whoa, before God, they built why? the building. Yeah, yeah, and they get yeah. all the people who read the New York Times gets to have an opinion. And it it was published as a twenty four hundred seat auditorium, which was shockingly less than the twenty seven hundred and sixty seat Carnegie Hall, right? Hmm. So a bunch of newspapers, especially the New York Herald Tribune, right, which is um, the newspaper Marx wrote for, um, decided... Yep, also appears in uh, Breathless. Yes. They decided to take on the cause of making the auditorium bigger. Um, and the building committee listened and told Abramovitz to cram some more seats in. And it yeah, got just bigger. Put, just put them in there. Just, <laughs> just, put, them put, in there. just put them in there. It got to 2,738 seats, and it got fatter and wider. Same. And it got longer. Yeah, mood. <laughs> yeah. Same. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a grower, not a shower. But. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and uh, Baranek said, listen, this is going to fuck up the acoustics. And that got as far yeah. as Ambrovitz's office and didn't get it get to the building committee. He wasn't able to raise his objections. To the people who made the decisions. Yeah. 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 It was truly. <laughs> this is like, see, like acoustics is like one of those things that's like always valued engineered. <laughs> even oh, yeah. in like, con- except for in concert halls, but even in concert halls, it happens. It's like so funny to me. But anyway, it's great. To hear music good. 
Well, they did. They did a couple <laughs> other changes without really cons- consulting uh, Baranic here, right? Which is um, the uh, acoustic clouds yeah. were made narrower. You can see in this chart down here. Yep. Which um, resulted in, uh, according to modeling, um, the original proposed ones would have, uh, you know, you'd have a better you'd have better bass in the auditorium with the original ones versus the new ones. You can sort of see in this chart, I, I'm, I'm again, I'm, I'm a dumb idiot here. I don't know why. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> really, yeah. Go ahead. They really mess with these. Um, they wound up doing a safety alteration to them because they were supposed to be individually adjustable. Right. Um, but someone said that's unsafe. What if there's an earthquake? They'll, they'll whack into each other. So they were all welded together. Make um, it more rigid. <laughs> yes. So you couldn't really adjust them individually anymore. Now um, we're talking. I don't I don't know if I don't know. Congratulations, if, if Alice. This must be a I'm having a great day time. For you. Yes. Yeah, yeah. It's a red letter day. The, uh, there we go. That's the phrase I wanted. Again, I am I am on the cusp of death. So <laughs> there is there's a picture of uh, the acoustic clouds in the next slide, so everyone can see what we're talking about. Take me um, now, Lord. Yeah. <laughs> um, then the contractor who did the welding misread the shop drawings and um, oh, good. yeah, nice. and, and and welded them together uh, six feet too low, or just Ooh. the front row. Oh, you you, you yeah. wanted a concert hall? What I've delivered you is a perfectly welded solid cube. <laughs> it's like a it's like a cavity magnetron. You have to fit a philharmonic into. I think some acoustic surfaces in the building were value engineered out, like panels nice. on the walls, good, and good. these are replaced by painting the wall blue. Oh, um, <laughs> value hack! Yeah, this one weird trick. There, there was some major <laughs> value engineering going on here. It seems nothing says suck it Soviet Union like value yeah. engineering. Mm. I think. I think the uh, the slope of the so balconies was also increased. <laughs> yeah, yeah. For better for better sight lines. Yeah, it's really great actually. So like, it's so funny. Um, yeah, let me let me find like this. Okay, so here's what here's what happened. Here's what happened too. Okay, we now we get into like the seat dip thing. Uh, they had. <laughs> Because, like, this was, like, an elite in luxury hall, it was demanded that the seats are both spacious and comfortable as well. I think Cadillac, not uh, Prius here. Right. Uh, and so they also, like, removed sidewall ornament and increased seating capacity, which had to be done without lengthening the hall, so to conform to its sleek architectural profile. And so, like, this also made the hall, like, pro- like prone to a, a weird kind of echo, and, like, there was a low, it was, like, extremely absorbent. Uh, and so, like, there was, like, it was basically, like, not reverberant. So, like, there was a weird echo. There was, like, little echo, little reverberation. But what was there was weird. Uh, hmm. And. Yeah, we've had wet. And now we have creepy. <laughs> yeah, but there's other things, like, even even though, like, it was, like, a total screw up. Uh, and again, just because they weren't allowed to change anything in the profile of the hall. Uh, but at the same time, like, a lot of the techniques, this is where we get to the butt part. Like, as you can see, like, this was a disaster. Like, on the opening night, like, musicians couldn't hear themselves. Like, it became very <laughs> clear, very, like, that. And, and Baranek, he just, like, kept fiddling with it. Like, kept adding things, kept changing things. Because it was all just, like, all they needed to do was raise the ceiling and make the hall narrower. 
And like they couldn't do that. Uh, and yes, so the all Kanye that he approach. did was just like make <laughs> he tried everything. He tried everything. And then he just threw thing after thing after thing at it. And it became very clear before the opening night that like, oh shit. You know? Oh, fuck. Like <laughs> and then it, the opening night was like a disaster. The the hall was like unlistenable. It was so bad that they just it couldn't even last for a few years before they were like, we have to just gut the whole thing. It's a complete lost job. Uh like I mean, this was like basically like what this said was that like the science of acoustics is not there yet. It just isn't. But that's one part of the problem is that like they didn't know exactly quite how to fix these things because like they still didn't quite understand like why things worked to begin with. They had basic like crude knowledge of it based on like what the technology was available at the time. But like it's in in a lot of ways though, like Baranek and his colleagues were really victims of, of, of a broader problem, which is that like people wanted, they wanted this to make money. They wanted it to look a certain way to increase rents and real estate values. Cause you have this big architect involved. Like they were really kind of victims of, of capitalism, even though like, you know, they've got a lot of money from it. And, and this really ran Baranek himself out of acoustics. Uh, and he like, he spent all of his time basically being on the payroll, doing his like weird acoustic surveys and, helping with research but he never designed he didn't he designed a couple more concert halls i think but he this was like he like was disgraced basically and it kind of like wasn't his fault and yet at the same time like this is a this is the butt part many of the techniques that they employed in the construction of the Philharmonic Hall were really new uh and like without experimentation like the field would never ever move forward we would just have shoebox halls forever mm. um and the thing is is like they had really massive impacts on Brannock's colleagues like Schultz and Russell, who would both go on to form their own acoustics firms after a schism that we won't talk about. Uh, the, <laughs> but the concept of like an overhead canopy as a reflector uh, and the like in the later another attempted fix employment of retractable curtains on stage to make the hall more flexible for use as a theater for speaking events would stay with like Russell Johnson, who became like highly involved in the development of like both a massive canopies and B adjustable acoustics throughout his entire career, which I think is very fascinating. If I went back to school, I would definitely like, that would be my research would be on Russell Johnson. Uh, but anyways, yeah. uh, uh, opening night, they had done, you know, months of tuning unsuccessfully in this theater. And then finally the moment of truth arrived Sunday, September 23rd, 1962. Right. And no one could be fully sure how the auditorium yes. sounded until there was an audience in there. And, yep. uh, as Kate said, it was bad. Really, really bad. Mm -hmm. uh, the journalists panned the hall, but the real kicker was that the conductors agreed. It's shit. Um, you know, Leonard Bernstein said, uh, or this is from meeting minutes from uh, uh, the, uh, the Philharmonic Orchestra. Mr. Bernstein has said, uh, as he listens to the auditorium, the hall has an uninteresting sound, except for the horns and clarinets. At no time does he feel he is surrounded by music. He said the general effect is like hearing music written on a blackboard, a tableau <laughs> effort. He said there Ooh. is no presence or warmth. <laughs> right? Um, <laughs> you know, he said there's uninteresting sound in without a sense of being surrounded by sound. There's a lack of strength in low-pitched instruments between A and E. Better in the higher seats than in the stalls. Domination of horns and woodwinds. Edgy high frequencies like they were amplified. Dependence on musicians on risers or in certain positions on stage is not acceptable. And disappointed it's impossible to speak to the musicians without strain. 
you know, no better than in Carnegie Hall, right? Damn, dude. Yeah. That's yep. rough. Ripped. It's bad. Yeah. Bad, folks. So, so they tried yet, tweaks. <laughs> lots of tweaks. Lots and of tweaks. The thing is, here's the thing about, about, about acoustics. This is like truly, there's like a fundamental rule of acoustics I learned in grad school, which is like, first of all, avoid the bad. Second, design the good. And like, <laughs> honestly, if you can't avoid the bad to begin with, it's in like what we call like the DNA of the hall. There's nothing you can do, nothing you can add that's going to fix it in a way that gutting it isn't. Uh, and so like, it's really kind of a high stakes thing. And it's almost, it's so like, there's nothing, no surface level thing that they could do to this hall that was going to fix all of the problems in it. They basically had to like gut it. Uh, and yet at the same time, like, and I'll talk about the renovation. I think we get to Avery Fisher Hall in a little bit. Uh, but at the same time, like, uh, the thing is, is that like the, for example, um, like this, this hall also did something that was very important, like extremely important for the development of acoustics at mid-century. It combined a shoebox hall, uh, with like real, the real rear walls were displayed like a fan shaped hall. Uh, and he really wa- like this. So theater Schultz, who is like another acoustician, uh, whose halls in the 1980s, like including, um, like the halls in Baltimore and Toronto, for example, like they, they really, he really ha- was obsessed with this idea that like you can, the fan was the most economical concert hall, but it sounded like shit. Uh, and the shoebox hall was the best sounding concert hall. And he like truly believed that there was some way to reconcile these differences. And this this reconciliation with economy and acoustics is what would would dominate the um, development of concert hall, uh, the, of concert halls like in this in the sixties and seventies, which is the period that I studied. Uh, and it was fascinating because like they really did a bunch of weird shit with the form of concert halls. Like we like it was like the most experimental age in the entire history of the field. And we came away with like some really fascinating and great knowledge about it um, that was necessary for concert halls to be better. And the thing is, is like, yeah, there's like there. I when I was at like covering cycling at the Vuelta, there's like a line like that Roglic, the Slovenian cyclist who won the Vuelta, said to press after he like won a stage by like doing some like mental shit. Was like he was like, yeah, no risk, no glory. And it's truly, that's truly like the, the thing about acoustics is like no risk, no glory. But man, sometimes if you take the risks, you truly do not get the glory. Uh, but it's, it's fascinating to me. Like, uh, I'll, I'll, like this, this, so many things were learned from the failures of Philharmonic Hall that it actually, despite being a huge piece of shit, improved the field massively and improved the field's understanding of problems massively. Because, like, Baranek, while he was figuring it out, right, while he was, like, doing his best, still managed to, like, get a lot of information and data about, like, what things were and weren't working. And all that stuff would prove to become useful in the future of the field. So, uh, and it, it avoided them for, like, making, um, making the same mistakes, essentially. Mm. Um, but, yeah, it, it, was a, it was a real, it was a real shit show. So, what happened after, right? Basically, the orchestra and the people involved said, like, God, we really, this is unusable. And they just, like, fired everyone involved. Uh, Which, to be fair, okay. But then it became clear, and there's, like, a really great New Yorker article about this. Go ahead. 
one thing I thought was kind of funny is that when they, you know, uh, Baranek suggested some solutions and they eventually, you know, they, they fired, they fired Baranek. Um, the building committee retained some outside experts to make recommendations. And this, uh, this, this committee of uh, this, this experts committee became known as the acoustical panel. <laughs> yes, which is funny. Yes. And I think Heinrich Kielhose is like the, the main, yes. the main guy on this. And he, he decided, you know, the way to go is to just, um, cover everything in wood. Right. Mm. Yes. Yeah. Be more trite about it. There's sure some yeah, hairbrain exactly. schemes. It, it, it was very See, much. That a, wasn't going to work either. He seemed to have a, a very much a return attitude here. He wanted to, uh, replace the clouds up here with the low wood ceiling. He wanted to. You know, he, he was like, if we put enough uh, acoustical wooden panels in here, it's going to replicate, you know, the, the quality of an old fashioned music hall, you know, which he attributed to factors like, you know, the balcony supports, the boxes, the statue niches. Um, you know, it, it, he's it's doing true. That, that is tradition. true and how it worked. <laughs> and that's kind of what ended up happening. OK, so this this gets us into like who they hired. They hired this guy named Cyril Harris. Um, so while both Berenick and Newman were like, kind of like the high modernist guys, Cyril Harris was like a little more conservative. Uh, and his work actually like before becoming an acoustician, he did several, he did dozens of shoebox, uh, neo, what I call a neo shoebox hall all across the country. He did one in Utah. He did one in Washington state. He did one like, I mean, he did them everywhere. He, he did the Kennedy center. Like this was like his bag. Uh, but he was hired to fix Philharmonic Hall on the advice of this pan, the acoustics panel. And he, he, the acoustics panel wasn't, despite being like, you know, pseudo trads or whatever, like they weren't wrong. Uh, like the statues and the niches and all the neoclassical ornament does like fix a lot of problems with diffusion and like, like things like basing the hall off of like the precedents of the past would have fixed the problems. And in fact, this reconciliation with modernism that had to happen is still what's going on in the current renovation today. Um, because they, they know exactly what they have to do to fix the hall. And yet they still have to make it innovative and interesting. And so, like, but in the seventies, uh, when, um, Sarah Harris got a hold of the hall, he was already doing work uh, on other projects and, and knew that like there was a way to do ornament that was what, you know, like in architecture, we have this style called new formalism, which technically speaking, Max Abramovitz's uh, architecture for uh, the Lincoln Center was a new formalist project. Like it, it was it was a modernist building based on neoclassical proportions uh, with like neoclassical formal elements, but not ornamental or elements. And so, like, basically, Cyril Harris was recreating that inside the concert hall. Uh, and he became very good at it. And he, but the thing is, is he still ran into the same problem, which is that the people who ran Lincoln Center wanted, the, the fundamental problem was, okay, so first of all, like, what he had to do was, because, like, I don't know if you guys saw on the slide, but because Philharmonic Hall had this very weird, curved, like, weird fan-like section, or fan-like plan, and, like, weird milk bottle-looking section, he basically like the first thing he had to do was like, OK, like this just has to be a square like this has to be a cube. <laughs> We're not going to get around like this just has to be a square. It has to be a shoebox. Uh, right. And that actually fix a lot of the problems, honestly. But again, we run into the perpetual problem that continues to this very day with when it comes to with with regards to like 
acoustic remediation and, and redevelopment of concert halls, which is that acoustics is fundamentally antithetical to selling a lot of tickets. It just is. The more seats you have, the shittier your hall is going to sound. There's literally like a golden like ratio of seats to square footage that you should have. And like basically anything with more than like 2000 seats and even 2000 is like a little high. Anything more than 2000 seats period like is gonna like you're you're starting to fall off the cliff there of the bell curve. Uh and the thing is is that Cyril Harris knew, and this was like the the bugbear of his entire career. His entire life was spent trying to mitigate like the contradictions of capitalism and acoustics. And he knew that what had to happen was that the hall needed to be narrower and there had to be fewer seats, fewer balconies and a taller ceiling. Like I said, the classic shoebox formula. And like they wouldn't let him do that. So like what he produced was a hall that sounded better, but because there still had to be so many damn seats, like and the hall had to be sufficiently wide enough to accommodate those seats, it still sounded like a dog. It sounded like a listenable dog, but it was a dog all the same. And so like again, a cursed project. And so ever since like the 1980s when like neoclassical uh postmodernism came back into style, there have been talks about redoing Avery Fisher Hall. And it's so funny how continually cursed this is. Like when I was in high, when I was in a graduate school, for example, there were rumors that like Thomas Heatherwick was going to get involved, and everyone was like, "Oh fuck!" Like here we go again. Like <laughs> <laughs> the worst possible guy to like get involved in any kind of civic project that is like notoriously cursed. The guy who did the vessel, like, oh boy, yeah. What if the concert so, hall made you want yeah, to kill yourself? Like, yeah. <laughs> One yeah, thing I mean, I like yeah, exactly. It costs you ten dollars <laughs> just to get in, regardless of how much the show actually costs. After one thing I like is yeah. that after the um after the 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 first renovation, um and the sound still wasn't that great. The New York Philharmonic uh, Orchestra started to uh or the members of it started to refer to it as a very fishy hall. <laughs> <laughs> That's cute. Yes. That's cute. So shall we get into what they're planning to do to it now? Oh, yeah. I mean, I think this was, so this was renovated again in 92, I think, just a little bit, but it, again, didn't work. Um, yeah. And then uh, one no. thing which I thought was an interesting fun fact is that the organ from the original hall was uh, sold to the Crystal Cathedral. Hmm. Um, and they Whoa. mashed it into yeah. another organ to make a big Franken organ. Wow, that is. Yeah. That's something else, man. I, I I like it. I think I'm a deeply diseased man. This is truly like literally the, <laughs> deeply. De- this is a deeply diseased project. Like truly, like a stupid project. Oh yeah. Like thanks, yeah, Kate. That yeah, makes yeah, me I, feel good. Yeah. Appreciate it, bud. Yep. Yep. But it's like the thing is, is like okay. Yeah, they tried to do some, again, more remediations in 1992 when we had, like, more information. But again, the budget on that was pretty small, so there weren't that many changes made. And it still didn't fix the fundamental problem, which is that, LOL, the hall is the wrong shape. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) Like, so, okay, now, now, after all this, after all this, all, after all of this, now they're like, now the architects, so first of all, they call these guys Diamond and Schmidt, uh, and like this other acquisition guy, whose name I forgot, uh, but that, like who works with, usually uh, with Diamond and Schmidt. Uh, is it Paul Scarborough or 
Joshua Dax. Yes, Paul Scarborough. Okay. No, Paul Scarborough, who is like a, you know, an acoustician. He's, I won't get in, I won't, like the, the, everyone in acoustics has worked at everywhere else. Scarborough started his own firm, I think in the 80s. Uh, but anyways, he's kind of like a minor character in acoustics, but it's good as shit that they hired him because like, he's like kind of like acoustically conservative, but that's what you need in a project like this, which it's like, finally, we actually need a little bit of conservatism in here. Uh, like, so what they're planning on doing is actually what should have been done all along. They're removing balconies. Thank Christ. So you have that spaciousness above the highest seated listener. They're narrowing the walls. They're doing, they're fixing the concert hall. And you know what? And you know what? There will be less seats. Oh my God. There will be fewer seats in Avery Frischel Hall. This is the truest. This is like the longest time coming victory for like the entirety of our jaded field. Like ever. Uh, Diamond and Schmidt is really known for doing kind of like what we call a modified shoebox hall, uh, which is like a a shoebox, but like kind of like slightly different in form and in other ways. And so like they uh, like did like a project in 2015 in Montreal that is like considered pretty good. But again, like they also have kind of, they're kind of like the, like Scarborough and like uh, Diamond and Schmidt who often work together are kind of like the Cyril Harris's of this generation of acousticians. Uh, these are the kind of projects that they work on and they're still like having to deal with the bugbear of having a hall that is like classically oriented in terms of like acoustics and like architecture, but has to also be modern, but also has to like make money. So like, this is like his cross to bear now, poor Paul Scarborough. Uh, and he's a good acoustician in my opinion. Uh, he's definitely capable. It's definitely glad that they didn't just hire the priciest guy. They're doing the cool model thing where they build a big square, uh, big scale model and like do measurements inside, which always also makes, takes really good pictures. Uh, and so that's like a really solid way to kind of like guess how a concert hall is going to sound. Um, so like actually after all these years, all these years and like billions of dollars, literally billions, (laughs) not, not even counting for inflation. Like, Finally, Avery Fisher Hall, now David Geffen Hall, having dodged the bullet of Thomas Heatherwick, will now finally be unfucked. Hopefully. Jesus Christ. Inshallah. Inshallah. This is like... Inshallah. This is is like a $550 million renovation, I think, to finally make the thing work. Yeah, they gotta do a lot of stuff. Oh, yeah. They're basically gutting it and redoing it. The pictures I've seen look really nice, actually. Uh, it looks like, honestly, like a pretty tastefully done project. They're doing some nice, cool, modern, uh, diffusive surfaces to get, like, what you would usually get off of, like, dripping ornament. Um, yeah, it's it's going to be a nice project. And I think it's going to sound, no matter what they do, it will probably sound better than what was previously happening. Um, but, yeah, so that's... That is the end of the long story of Philharmonic Hall. Hopefully, my my goal is that someone will send me out there to review it when it's done, because, God, I really need closure on this. <laughs> like, please, please, I wrote my master's thesis on this. Like, I had, like, dug in, like, the archives of, like, acousticians. I, like, you know, made models. I did all this stuff. Like, I, this is, like, this is, like, my white whale as an academic is, like, this era era of acoustics, which was like the worst ever era of acoustics, because like failure is really fascinating to me. Things that suck are really fascinating to me. That's why I like do McMansion Hell. Like ugly architecture is like my favorite kind. I think like 
Yeah. And this, this had all of it. This had everything. This had like the failures of modernism, the failures of urban renewal had like the failures of like scientific hubris. It had like the fundamental conflict between things that sound good and things that make money. I mean, it's like a wet dream of like, a. Th- it's like, it's like this, this fascinating, like political, social, architectural, cultural phenomenon that like really touches everything that like I love to learn about and love to write about. And so like for there to finally be justice for Philharmonic Hall would be great. But also if it sucks again, that would be top wall and I would never stop laughing. And I would that like would be very literally funny. be like that picture of Jeb that is like the meme, like just like, yeah, like I will just like my hands will be up and I'll be like cackling like a little gremlin because it's like, yeah, this is like what you get. This is if this project is fucked one more time, then that is just fundamental proof that the ghosts of all those people that they displaced back in the 50s are truly haunting that space. The, conduct- <laughs> the conductor has to turn around to the audience and say, please clap. <laughs> yes. Jeb Memorial Concert Hall. And the clapping is like all fucked up because the acoustics are bad. <laughs> yeah. Incredible. All right. Well, what did we learn today? Acoustics for people. Acoustics yes. are still guesswork. People, and you should only use guesswork at any yes. time. Mm. Fire don't, off a shotgun okay, in uh, there. Don't displace poor people. Yeah. Yeah, get bring back the shotgun. Bring back the mm-hmm. shotgun. Like, yeah, it's very acoustics are acousticians are really weird people. Uh, obviously, and like when I was in graduate school, this this acoustician named Larry Kierkegaard came to visit us. Uh, he's like an old man now, and he brought uh like a slat like a little like marble sample, like a marble countertop sample, and like a and a metal spoon, and he made us like use like a um like a special type of microphone, a parabolic microphone, um, which is like basically like a little satellite dish with like a microphone in it. Uh, And he would walk around like tapping the spoon on the marble. And if you listened in the headphones of the parabolic microphone, you could hear like the reflections come back. Like it was like, and I was like, these people are freaks, but they are my freaks. Like (laughs) it, uh, I had a lot of fun doing architectural acoustics, uh, and it was always like my backup plan that if like I somehow got like canceled or whatever, I could like have go and like retire into the world of doing spreadsheets for reverberation time for a living. Though I'd, I'd have to probably refresh on my uh, on my skills here after all these years. But as as a his, as a historian, I think I think acoustics is a fascinating subject, and if I had to go back to school, which I probably won't, I. Probably go uh, study the history, get a PhD in the history of science and continue this work, which is like, if you can't tell, like, I actually, I I really love this stuff. Like, I think it's, I'm, it's, it was like my first love ever uh, as like an architecture critic and uh, as like an academic and which I'm not anymore. I'm like all kinds of things now, but yeah, I think the main point here is like, this is what you get when you displace poor people. This is what you get when like... The Rockefellers try to do Cold War stuff and end up like taking massive L's all around. This is what you get when you try to fit a 19th century concert hall into a 20th century building that refuses to budge. This is what you get when you think that like science solves everything, which it doesn't. Uh, yeah, it has everything. So good. My real question is, what is the Soviet Poor equivalent of this? 
There's always a Soviet equivalent. Mm. There's got to oh, be. The thing be. is, it, the Soviet equivalent <laughs> of this is made entirely out of like know. reinforced yeah. concrete, weighs fifteen hundred tons. <laughs> yeah, the, it's it's it, yeah. it it makes it makes the uh, the People's Palace look like a shoebox. It has oh, a yeah. rocket on it for some reason for afterburners. <laughs> <laughs> well, the thing about the Soviets is that they reuse for them. Like it was very important to like reuse the uh, Gilded Age concert halls of. Um, the, of the of the Russian aristocracy and like make them palaces of the people than it was to like reclaim them and like stake their claim there than it was to build new concert halls, which of course they did. But uh, I actually don't know that much about Soviet concert halls because there's not a lot of uh, academic information on it published in anything other than Russian, ah. uh, which is actually why I was learning Russian at some point because I wanted to like figure that out. Uh, I know a little bit more about like Yugoslavian concert halls, uh, which, which are kind of more like you were describing. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, they were like big concrete modernist slabs. Ditto Venezuela, uh, and South America in general. Actually, South American concert hall, uh, architecture is really fascinating, but we don't have time to go into that. But, uh, the comparison that I make actually is one to social democracy, uh, for example. So like at the same time that all of this was happening, like the Berlin Philharmony was built and the Berlin Philharmony was like the, like equally as important as Philharmonic Hall in shaping the history of acoustics. It was like, I think probably the most influential concert hall of the 20th century, but it's very different. Like it was built entirely with public funds. It didn't displace anyone because Berlin had been bombed to shit. And what they built on it was like an empty field that was bombed to shit. Uh, and so like, they didn't displace yeah, anyone. Welcome. That was the war. Yeah. <laughs> uh, they let their acoustician, Lothar Kramer, uh, go basically absolutely ham and do like this weird vineyard style thing. No one knew how it was going to turn out. And in fact, people didn't really like it at first, but now it's considered to be one of the greatest concert halls of all time. Uh, and every new concert hall is basically like a stepchild of, of the Berlin Philharmonie. It's my favorite concert hall on earth. Uh, and Hans Scharoun was the architect and he was kind of a, he was he had very like social democratic views about how it should have been done. Like it should have been an open plaza, open to the people, like it should like like the the democracy of the concert hall was all in that like everyone had great sight lines and great acoustics. Like it was not separated by hierarchy. The only hierarchy in the Berlin Phil is the cost of tickets. But architecturally speaking, everyone gets a good seat, especially if you're a student, then the cost of tickets doesn't matter. But yeah. Yeah, so this was a very different way of thinking than, like, the, uh, I mean, it's imperfect from, like, a political perspective and kind of, like, idealistic, but it was definitely improvement over, like, the capitalists, the pure capitalists, not social democratic, not not even, and I'm talking, like, Euro social social democracy. I'm not even talking, like, old school Rosa Luxemburg social democracy. I'm talking, like, basic, like, post-war welfare state shit. And so, but it's much better, for example, than, like, the American capitalist like way of doing things, which is how we ended up in the Philharmonic Hall mess, uh, which where like seat seat prices and like seating and selling tickets mattered way more than anything else. And so on the one hand, you got but you still on both hands got concert halls that like improved the science of concert halls. And but it took actually quite a long time for them to understand why Philharmonic Hall or why the Berlin Philharmony worked. It took them about like 10 or 15 years of uh, and it was actually a New Zealand guy from New Zealand named Carol Marshall, who figured out that it had to do with the, the terrace balconies end up like sending like early, what they call early lateral reflections, which are the reflections that, that, um, provide clarity to sound. So it's like why if, if you have really strong early lateral reflections, 
you have uh, basically you can understand what's going on in, in the music. Uh, and then everything that comes the, the late reflections uh, are what give the space its spaciousness. And so like uh, the volume of the space combined with the terraces, like provided like a really nice acoustics profile that kind of sent early lateral reflections to everyone instead of just like to, to people sat in like more favorable places. Um, and there's always still bad seats in every hall. Ironically, the bad seats in the Berlin Phil are the ones that are now taken by rich people because they're like the private boxes. Uh-huh. <laughs> Those Good. are the worst seats in the Good. hall. Yeah. Good. Based so. acoustics. All right. I think that's it. Yeah. That's, I think that's it. But that gives you yeah. a, an example of like what other people did that was really good. I stand. I, I definitely, I definitely enjoy the theory of build it now, figure out how it works 15 yeah. years later. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I like that they have a cure time of like 50 years. Yeah. Me, me, meanwhile, the, meanwhile the medieval Masons building cathedrals are like, whoa, 50 years? That's real fast. <laughs> Well, well, most things like universally yeah. have terrible acoustics. Also true, because <laughs> they need another well, five hundred years for a different type of music. Well, this is true. Yeah. All right. All right. I think that's it. Well, we have a segment on this podcast. I gotta go to called Slovenia now. Safety third. Hold on, I'll make this quick. Shake hands with danger. Hello, Justin, Alice, yay, Liam, and potential guest. This, Love this the Kate. pages. Yes. Hello, guest, or uh, whatever. Hi, Kate. Uh, hi, <laughs> listener. I leave my name redacted and write to you today with my experience in narrowly becoming Chunky Marinara. I work for a company that installs and repairs ATMs, along with safes and other various bank-related goodies. Our company does tend to keep safety in mind, and allows us to take safety into our own hands. Hence why I wear a bullet-resistant vest and carry the pride of Austria with me every day. Nice. Nice. That being said, my CEO has a tendency of agreeing to some of the stupidest requests from banks that I have ever heard. In this instance, a bank had built a new branch and had us moving everything between the two locations. This eventually came down to moving the safety deposit boxes. These are normally installed via crane as the bank vault is being built, as even some of the smaller ones can weigh around 1,800 kilograms. That's 4,000 pounds. These were not smaller ones and weighed easily over 2,000 kilograms. Given that they had already finished construction of the second bank, the luxury of a crane was unavailable. My manager rented some equipment that would allow us to get one safety deposit box off the others as they're stacked like bunk beds. The equipment is designed to slip its arm in and elevate whatever the arms are under. This equipment, which is shaped like a stick figure, I assume it's one of those manual lift things, right? Mm. Was obviously never intended for the purpose we were applying it to. I noted this upon reading the weight guide, which was capped at 600 kilograms. (laughs) Oh boy. (laughs) My boss muttered, It's probably fine before cranking the device up. We watched the steel spine bend like a strand of licorice, all (laughs) where the safety deposit box barely moved. Being probably not fine, we pulled the lifter out and began brainstorming. We eventually settled on the Jenga tower method. See attached images. Oh, no. Uh, (laughs) 
We built the tower and then used pry bars and good old-fashioned elbow grease to move the box onto the tower. We then used car jacks to elevate one side at a time before pulling out the plank uh, out of place and then carefully and slowly lowering the box at an angle. This is the most dangerous shit I've ever heard. <laughs> During this process, I ended up near the far wall of the vault, which is comprised of lots of concrete and steel plating. This put me in a position where if the box slipped, it would pin me against a practically immovable wall. I would simply not be in that position. <laughs> <laughs> Knowing the potential crushing hazard, we worked slowly, taking at least an hour and a half to get down to the ground, where we could load it up and cart it out on a pallet jack. I didn't notice at the time, but I'm happy my coworker documented the entire event. If something had happened, he could have delivered the video to my family to explain why my remains came packaged in a Campbell's tomato soup can. <laughs> yeah, what, why does your camera film with a live leak logo on the top left? Oh, it is Chunky Marinara. <laughs> Luckily, no bad events transpired, though I doubt it will ever agree to such a task ever again. And thankfully, I'm still around to be able to listen to your podcast, so thank you for what you do. You're Cheers, welcome. Name Redacted. Thanks, Name Redacted. Yes, thank you, Name Redacted. Shake hands with danger. Our next episode is on the Tacoma Narrows Bridge. No, it's not. No, it's not. No, it's not. No, it's not. It's, no, it's, not. it's, it's on the Boston Molasses. I don't believe you. Molasses. No, I gave you the book and everything, motherfucker. All right. All right. Plugs, commercials before we go, please. Alice, go. Then Liam. Uh, Trash Future, Kill James Bond. Podcasts, listen to them with your ears. Uh, Lions Led by Donkeys and my new Philly sports podcast. Uh, 10,000 losses. Go read oh McMansion Hell. Kate, plug your thing. Kate. Oh, yeah. There go read go. McMansionHell.com. A blog yes. about ugly houses that I also run. Also subscribe uh, to her cycling yes. newsletter. And yes, derailer.net, like the part of the bike. Uh, it's very cool uh, if you like cycling. And if you don't, yeah. it's like, I don't know, sports story time. Uh, I have to go to Slovenia now, actually. So okay, Bye, next Kate. yeah, next <laughs> next next Tuesday, Kate and I are on Guest Crit, which is arch an architecture criticism stream, which is uh, uh, run by the folks at Failed Architecture, Kevin and Michael, who we had on the podcast previously. It's going to be a good time. We're going to talk about trains. Um, so yeah, uh, listen to that. We will. We I'll put a link in the description there. Um, I think that's next Tuesday, the 26th of October um, at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, I think. All right. Bye, everybody. All right. Hi. That's it. I'm going to go fucking lay down. All right. <laughs> <laughs>